Glory be to God, whose power working within us can do infinitely more than we can ask or imagine. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. I want you all to know that I was sorely tempted to preach on the deep theology of Bohemian Rhapsody and how Beelzebub has a devil set aside for me, but I have resisted that temptation. All the woulda, coulda, shouldas layin' in the sun, talking about the things they woulda, coulda, shoulda done, but those woulda, coulda, shouldas all ran away and hid from one little did. This past week, I went to a very interesting lecture over at the Heard Museum called Should Phoenix Exist? I haven't even lived here a full year yet, and yet I find myself asking that very question quite often. Because what comes to mind is the TV show King of the Hill, where the Hill family is traveling from Texas to Phoenix for the first time. And their young son looks at the thermometer in the car and says, 111 degrees? That's not possible. Phoenix can't really be that hot. And as he steps out of the car, he screams in agony and says, Oh my God, it's like standing on the surface of the sun. And his mother replies, Phoenix should not exist. It is a testament to man's arrogance. (laughs) Should Phoenix exist? In a word, no. As it turns out, And as you may well know, there's really no reason that we should be here today in our fair city. The resources that we need to survive, like water and electricity, come from hundreds of miles away. And the city has really only been a city in the last half century and a major player on the American scene in the last 10 years. But saying that Phoenix shouldn't exist certainly doesn't deny that it does. And it doesn't allow us not to stop, open our eyes, look around at our reality, and wonder where we have been and where we're going next. In today's reading from the Old Testament, the Israelites are once again asking God, should our relationship stay the same way it is right now? The first and second book of Samuel are part of a larger history of the people of Israel that tells of the transition from the 12 tribes of Israel being ruled by judges to being ruled by kings. And central to the story is the figure of Samuel, who is a priest, a prophet, and a judge. Samuel was born after his mother Hannah, who had tried for years and years to conceive, was blessed with her son after praying before the altar. Hannah prayed so fervently that no sounds could come out, just tears to accompany the silent words being shaped by her lips. The priest Eli saw her and was momentarily confused over whether or not she was drunk at the temple, an oddly consistent theme in our Pentecost season. But Eli recognized that Hannah's ardent prayer was faithful and told her that God would fulfill it So when she delivered her firstborn son, Hannah named him Samuel, which means God has heard. Hannah gives Samuel into the service of the Lord, and Eli becomes Samuel's mentor as a young boy. Samuel slept in the tabernacle, and one night he heard a distinct voice calling his name, Samuel. And Samuel woke up and went to Eli, 
who was also sleeping in the tabernacle, and said, Here I am. You called me. No, I didn't, Eli says, and sends the boy back to sleep. It happens again. A voice calls Samuel, and Samuel wakes Eli to say, Here I am. You called me. Eli says, No, my son, and sends him back to sleep. It happens a third time, and then a light bulb goes off for Eli. Eli realizes that it's the Lord who's calling Samuel. And the Bible says, interestingly, that Samuel does not yet know the Lord, so he can't identify the voice as God. But isn't it amazing that to Samuel, the voice of God is already like the voice of a person whom he loves and whom he knows loves him? So Eli tells Samuel that when the Lord calls out to him again, because the Lord will continue to call out to him by name, the Lord who knows Samuel, even if Samuel doesn't know the Lord, Eli tells him that the Lord is calling to him, and his response shall be, Here I am, Lord. Your servant is listening. In this moment, Samuel moves into relationship with God. But it's not a new relationship. It's been going on since Samuel was just a prayer on Hannah's lips. But in this moment, Samuel joins the program already in progress. By simply saying, here I am, here I actively participate in this, Samuel's life becomes a life that the people of Israel haven't seen since Moses. Samuel's willingness to live fully into relationship with God allows God to unfold the divine will for the world. Samuel becomes a priest and a prophet and a judge. When Samuel was alive, Israel was constantly under attack by the Philistines. And it seems like every other day there was a battle. And for a time in this period, even Israel even loses the Ark of the Covenant. But throughout all this, Israel is govern, governed by judges. People who God chooses to sustain the Hebrew tribes through their trials and tribulations by advocating both for justice among themselves and a return to Torah living living into the covenant relationship that already exists between God and his people. At this point, Samuel appoints his two sons to also be judges, but like we say in the 28 prayer book, they have erred and strayed like lost sheep, and their manifold sins and wickedness have not only corrupted their hearts, but the whole judicial system. And this growing dissatisfaction and pain leads the people to ask, should judges exist? The issue, of course, is that whether or they should or not, judges do exist. So the people of Israel tell Samuel that they don't want judges anymore. They want a king like all these other prosperous and conquering nations have. And Samuel is furious and heartbroken. Judges were non-hereditary rulers who had jurisdiction over family lands. And judges could not and would not rule alone. Their authority was always derived from and always acknowledged as divine. It was God who ruled, and the judges acted on the Almighty's behalf. So we come to today's reading. The people want a king, and so Samuel approaches God. The people are asking, should judges exist? And no, the answer is no. While Samuel also knows that no is the answer to his question, should a king exist? They're arguing it should be this way, and it should be this way. When God steps in to say to Samuel, it is already my way. 
God tells Samuel to let the people know the awful truth. It will not turn out like they hoped. God, who is in full covenant with each and every person equally, sustains this loving and life-giving equality through the judges. But a monarchy inherently means inequality, and God warns Israel that their king will create inequality of such a scale that it will become the worst relationship that humans can create to one another, that of slavery. So when Samuel asks the question, should kings exist, he knows the answer is already no. But he also knows that God will show him that whatever reality Israel is living, it is already part of God's reality, and God will continue to reveal himself in it. So God appoints Saul as the first king. But when Saul falls short in his heart and in his environment, God uses the kingship to raise up David. And by making David a king, a branch from the root of his father, Jesse, is established. A royal priesthood that grows down through the generations, continues through a conquest and a Babylonian exile and a return to the promised land, a root that deepens and finally ends in a manger in Bethlehem the night that Jesus Christ was born. Asking questions that begin with should is a pointless but ruthlessly seductive enterprise. Asking whether or not something should exist in our hearts or should exist in the world immediately wakes us up to the reality that this something we're worried about already exists in some form. For all the things we would have done differently, or all the time that could have been used differently, asking should robs action away from us because we are so weighed down with the consequences of our reality on both our past and our future. Should is depressing not only because you're immobilized by asking it, but when you put yourself in the jailhouse terms of should, your rebellious nature kicks in. Should this be happening, we ask, and we can't change the fact that it already is, and so it's immobilizing and infuriating all at once. Staying in should robs us of past action while simultaneously denying us the opportunity to take action now. Whatever reality we find ourselves in today, we can take hope from Samuel that our awareness of it is being woven into the reality of God. And when the people of Israel want a king, God is already making that reality, damaged as it will be, his own. When Samuel hears a voice he doesn't yet know, but responds to it with his life, Samuel is tapping into the reality of God, and it's a reality that you and I share. For the big things, for the dark things, asking should instills fear and creates no small amount of vulnerability. Should my cancer exist? Should his depression exist? Should her addiction exist? Should our debt exist? Should it exist? Probably not. Does it? Absolutely. And when we ask should about God, the stakes only get higher because the questions become essential. Should I be in relationship with God? Friends, the answer to that question Should I be in relationship with God is no. 
because you already are in a relationship with God. Like Samuel, God has been in relationship with you unequivocally and with wild abandon since you, like the psalmist David writes, were formed in your mother's womb. All of the shoulds and coulds and woulds go out the window when we can respond like Samuel, here I am. What would it be like to live in the I am instead of the I should? Imagine the freedom to embrace God as God is, fully present with you, not because of what you've done or what you will do, but because God self-defines as the great I am, all-encompassing, all-embracing, and always moving forward in ways that we can help or hinder but never detract from. This is God who says, I am, and is our ever-present reality. If we were to say we should be in relationship with God, it denies that we have already been in relationship with God, and it implies that there's a chance God will somehow stop being in relationship with us in the future. God infinitely is, and infinitely is in relationship with us through the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Samuel teaches us that when it comes to being in a relationship with God, there is only God's doing, what God will do, what God is doing, what God has done, and our response to that is to be present to it. Not responding to God doesn't mean that God goes away or that God has abandoned you. It means that in some way we're not paying attention for whatever reason, good or ill, that is going on in our hearts or in our surroundings that cannot allow us to pay attention to God's still, quiet voice or God's deep and abiding presence. I am. I am. But that doesn't mean that we have to abandon all hope to the dreaded should. Instead, we should, we should, let's try, like Samuel, to awaken to God's ongoing relationship with us, saying, here I am too, Lord. Your servant is listening. Who knows where it might take us? All the woulda, coulda, shouldas laying in the sun talking about the things they woulda, coulda, shoulda done. But those woulda, coulda, shouldas all ran away and hid from one little did.